the Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. Greetings, friends and fellow companions, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Dragonlance Canticle, broadcasting to you live from the hottest summer that Earth has ever known to discuss the hottest summer that Kryn has ever known. My name is Megan, and with me is my faithful companion and friend, John. Say hello, John. Hello, John. Hi, John. (laughs) How are you? I am excellent. How are you? I am also excellent, except that it is hot and muggy here in Southern California, but it is very apropos for this episode that we are going to be doing today. Because we are going to be discussing the Summer of Flame. Yes, the Summer of Dragon Flames. (laughs) I couldn't remember the title earlier. I kept calling it, I called it the Summer of Dragon Flames and embarrassed myself. But I mean, that that title works too, right? I mean, that's sort of what happens. It's, It's summer and there's dragons that have flames. There are definitely lots of dragon flames to be had. (laughs) Before we get started, though, I want to do a quick shout out um, to some of the products that we're doing um, for the Dragonlance Nexus. Shadow of the Black Rose is going to be available as print on demand very soon. We are working. uh, We are working diligently. Uh, Shout out to Ed, who has been working really hard to make it a reality. So print on demand for Shadow of the Black Rose should be out relatively soon. Um, and also next month, we are going to be releasing our Autumn Twilight book, which is going to be a uh, conversion guide, a fifth edition guide for running the original the the original Dragonlance modules in 5e. Um, I think it's going to be um, the first four, if I'm not mistaken. Basically, the, the events of yeah, the events of Dragons of Autumn Twilight and the events of Dragons of the Dwarven Depths um, together in one book. So if you're interested in keeping up with everything that we're doing for the Dragonlance Nexus, you can join our Facebook group. Um, that's kind of the best way to keep in touch with, with what we're doing. And you can also follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter. Our uh, handle there is at DLNexus. Um, so you can get updates on the kind of stuff that we're doing. Um, and today, oh, and I also want to mention that we're going to be doing, um, sometime in the not too distant future, we're going to be doing a discussion episode for Dragons of Fate. Um, it's been out for a month now, so we'll get everybody who's read it and is eager to discuss it together and do kind of a roundtable discussion episode for Dragons of Fate. So if you're interested in Dragonlance stuff and you're not already subscribed to this podcast, then you can do so now and you'll get a notification when that episode is available. Um, for this episode, um, I do want to issue a quick spoiler warning. Um, this is going to contain spoilers, especially for the novel Dragons of Summer Flame. Um, the novel is almost 30 years old at this point. So if you haven't read it by now, uh, what, what are you, you waiting for? <laughs> what are you waiting for? <laughs> um, but just in case, if you're a new Dragonlance fan or a latecomer and you, you have not yet read Dragons of Summer Flame, actually, I'll say this. If you haven't read the anthology that's called The Second Generation, if you haven't read either of those yet, you might want to skip this episode because it's probably going to have some spoilers. But um, come back, please. So spoiler warnings out of the way. The... Uh, the, the sort of overall topic that I want to begin with is um, to sort of get our heads around what is the Chaos War. Um, we've all heard a million things about the War of the Lance. Every Dragonlance fan knows the War of the Lance inside and out. But I happen to think that the Chaos War is a very interesting and very exciting event in Dragonlance. And it doesn't get the love that it deserves, at least from the wider world. Um, so... 
I approached John and I said, hey, I really want to talk about the Chaos War. Let's get together and talk about some of the Chaos War novels. There is an entire series of novels um, set during the Chaos War. Dragons of Summer Flame isn't technically part of that series, but really it's like the setup for that series. And there's a lot of great ones. Some great authors, Richard Knack, Douglas Niles um, wrote for that. Margaret Weiss herself with, um, she wrote Don with Don Perrin, Perrin for, with yep. Don Perrin for, um, for the Draconian novels. The Doom Brigade. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and there's a few others as well. The, the authors aren't uh, springing to mind at the moment, but it's a great series of novels and uh, I think they deserve more love, and I think that they deserve to be discussed on our podcast. The Chaos War, broadly speaking, is um, happens, what, 25, 30 years after the War of the Lance? The hero's kids are adults in their own right, and the primordial deity Chaos gets released from his, gets released from the Grey Gem, uh, summons all kinds of demons and fire dragons and, and nasties with the intention of basically destroying the entire world. He's not trying to take over the world. He's trying to destroy it. Um, right. The uh, the plaything of the gods. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's trying to take it all out. Yeah. And simultaneously, there's also this this uh, war going on between the mortals. The Knights of Tachesis have are trying to subjugate Ancelon in the name of the Queen of Darkness, Tachesis. So that's kind of the the the, the drama going on initially. But then chaos is released and the forces of good and evil are forced to the forces of good and evil must unite in order to save the world from absolute destruction. Right. That's well, that was an excellent episode, Megan. Thank me. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) You're welcome. Good night, everybody. But this this story is basically encapsulated within the novel Dragons of Summer Flame. Um, it's expanded upon, of course, in the Chaos War series, like we just mentioned. But Dragons of Summer Flame is really the, the definitive novel about the Chaos War. Um, right. it, it follows the main story of it. Um, the other novels set in the Age of or the uh, the, the Chaos War series kind of touch on other areas of Ancelon, uh, what they're experiencing during this um, summer and uh, and during the war, and. There's some really, really good stories uh, that come out of this era. I wanted to ask you, just broadly speaking, generally speaking, before we go into too much detail, how do you feel about Dragons of Summer Flame, the novel? Overall, uh, I enjoyed it. When I got into Dragonlance, it was in the early 90s. Um, so everything, you know, the the main books had already been written. They'd been out for, you know, several years. So this was my first chance to jump into something new that was new along with everybody else. Everybody was experiencing this at the same time. I had a similar experience where I was, I don't remember how how old I was. I was pretty young, but I had just, I was like you, I had just discovered Dragonlance too. And I had read, I had read Chronicles and uh, Legends. I had read the Tales trilogies and it's the same thing. Like this was, this was the big, you know, this is the big thing that came out and that I got to be excited about along with everybody else. Nice. So we were just about <laughs> literally as far away on this continent from each other as we possibly could have been at that point. Cause I was, yeah, uh, reading the same I was book. in Washington state <laughs> on the coast and uh, you were on the East coast. Yeah. That's cool. And I will say that, uh, as much love as I have for many other Dragonlance novels, dragons of summer flame is my favorite Dragonlance novel. Nice. Um, it's not my favorite, but it's definitely in the top, I don't know, five. 
Um, I feel like it takes everything from the previous three trilogies and just distills it down into one novel. And I love the characters. I love the pace of it. Um, I love the dramatic, the dramatic feel of it. I just feel like it takes everything that's everything that's Dragonlance and just like, like I said, distills it down into the, into its essence and puts it all in one book. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was supposed to be three. I think that Margaret and Tracy did a fantastic job of getting three books worth of stuff into one meaty, meaty book. Um, I would have loved to have seen three books. I, I wonder what that story, you know, what else would have been added to fill out three more or two more books. So a, a trilogy for the Chaos War, I think, would have been, I don't know, too epic for words. It, it would have been. It would have been, for sure. But honestly, I think that's part of what makes Dragons of Summer Flame as great as it is. That it's a trilogy's worth of stuff packed into a single book. You know, yeah. there, there's no filler in this book at all. There's, like, not a wasted no, scene. It's just, like, not. boom, 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 boom. And we didn't have to wait two years to get to the ending. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's discuss, let's dive into the book itself. We're going to go through this a bit chronologically, but we're going to stray off, uh, uh, stray off on little detours to discuss other topics. Um, so the book begins, um, on the island of the Erda, which I don't think ever really gets a name. And it is the hottest summer that has ever been on Kryn. Um, so Kryn is experienced climate, experiencing climate change as well. Um, and then so it starts with a, uh, a pair of Knights of Tachesis arriving on the island of the Irda, discovering this this strange and remote island, which they don't realize, but we, the audience, eventually realize is um, actually the is actually inhabited by the Irda, who are the sort of progenitor species from which ogres would eventually devolve. I guess you might say, um, if you wanted to be mean about it. So the yeah. Irda were created by the Queen of Darkness. They're beautiful and fair and intelligent, and they eventually get corrupted into evil. But those who turned towards the gods of good remain Irda. But the sort of the the price for their being saved from this terrible fate of being ogres is that they are going to forever be a small and isolated people. Yeah, they're extremely rare. Extremely mm -hmm. rare. And I want to point out, though, we do have them as a playable ancestry in Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything, right? That is correct. Yeah, so if you want to play you as an Erda, you can. <laughs> yeah. You can be an Erda in your own story. Mm -hmm. You, listener. And then, uh, so the Knights of Tachesis, I think that I read this book before I had read the Kitiara's son story. So there is <laughs> these Knights of Tachesis show up, and I was like, Knights of Tachesis, what is that? Um, nice. I, I do, <laughs> I do remember. I, I did read um, the second generation when it came out, mm -hmm. and the cool thing about that in the ori original publication, it had stats for mm -hmm. the Knights of Tikis's classes in the back with uh, mm -hmm. your, your second edition AD and D rules. I told you there was so much information about the ranking systems and like the names as you leveled up. You know the rank, the names of the ranks that you got. You know, you you can't talk about Summer Flame without mentioning things from uh, Second Generation because it, it's very relevant, uh, very yeah. relevant. Um, but that book, the introduction to the Knights of Tachesis, I was hooked 
And when Summer Flame, like, that's what they started with was these knights. That's what drew me in. That's because I was such a huge fan of the Knights of the Kisses. Their stories, you know, like their their origins and what happened and with uh, Steel during uh, the, the short story of Kadiara's son. Like, I was immediately hooked. They didn't even have to do anything you say, except say Knights of the Kisses, and <laughs> I'm on board. Yeah, so Second Generation. So Second Generation, and just in case anybody doesn't know who's listening, is a collection of novellas. It collects together three novellas that had appeared in the Tales anthologies, which were The Legacy, Wannabet, and Raceland's Daughter. And then they added two new stories, which was Kitiara's son about Steel, the son of Sturm and Kitiara, and then uh, The Sacrifice, which is about the son of Tannis and Lorana. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two novel, I mean, the, the, the anthology and the novel are, are, I think you could probably understand what was going on in Dragons of Summer Flame without having read the second generation, but you're really going to be missing out on a lot. Um, yeah. And they're, so. those stories are so good. Even if yeah. some of them might not end up being true, um, mm-hmm. it's still we'll, a we'll really good story. That. We'll get to that. Oh, will we? <laughs> we will. <laughs> okay. So the Knights of Tachesis, just to sum it up, are an, are an order of knights built on the model of the Knights of Slamnia, but they are, um, they are, dedicated to the service of Tachesis. And they are not just fighters like they are in the Knights of Slamnia. They also have wizards and clerics as full members of the knighthood. Um, and they're led by uh, Lord Ariakan, who is the son of Ariakas from the leader of the dragon armies from the War of the Lance, who himself is a really cool character. I think he should have gotten, I mean, I think he could have had his own novel. I think he, his story is so interesting just on its own. The, the knights come and go without ever realizing the Irda are there. Um, but the Irda are like, well, this is a close call. Uh, we need to do something to make sure that uh, the Irda, or sorry, we need to make something, make sure that nobody ever comes back to our island again. Uh, so we're going to do the logical thing and crack open the Grey Gem of Gargath, release the power that's inside it, and um, control its us. magic to protect us uh, forever. Because this terrible artifact of doom that destroys everything it, it comes in contact with. You know, why Why could this be a, a bad idea? Right. Um, and the only person on the island who thinks that this is a bad idea is Usha, who is a human who was raised by the Irida, who will be a major figure in this book. She's like, well, I think this is a bad idea. I think that you're meddling with forces that you can't control. And the Irida are like, ha, stupid human. What does she know? Um, and they put, her on a magic, <laughs> they put her on a magic boat and send her off the planet. The the explanation is that they think that Usha won't be able to survive what's about to come. Ironic, since they themselves will not survive what's about to come. As they, they were right. <laughs> so Usha gets sent off on a magic boat um, to Palanthus with a letter for Dalimar, one of the one of the Irda, one that's one that's only ever called the Protector. Keep this character in the back of your mind. Keep keep the name the Protector in the back of your mind. Um, the Protector is the only one of the Irda who's like. Mm, I kind of see Usha's point. This might not be a great idea. I'm going to at least tell somebody what's going on. So he sends a message along with Usha to give to Dalimar. In this letter, the protector is telling, is writing to Dalimar the history of the creation of the world and the history of the Grey Gem, which had at this point already been covered in a number of sources. Um, but they kind of, they, 
they fudge it a little bit because the protector is like, well, this is our version of the history of the world. But considering this version feeds into everything that happens, then I guess it's kind of the true version. Every people of Kryn, um, and this is historically through the whole existence of Dragonlance, every sentient species of Kryn has their own view of the history of the world and how their own people came into being. And uh, the Urda, um, they're no different. Not at all. So let's talk about... So when I read this version, uh, steeped in second edition lore as I was, I was like, hmm, this is a bit weird. I'm going to point out a few things. I'm going to point out a few things that stuck, that that struck me when I was reading this for the first time. And and you can tell me if I'm if I'm right or wrong in my reactions to this. According to uh, the Irda, chaos is not just some primeval force. Chaos is a, a, a thinking being with a personality and an identity um, described as the father of all and of nothing. But so he's yeah, like I the original from which from which Paladine to and Gillian came. Yeah, because I, I don't think in the gaming materials at that point or in any of the other stories or novels had ever mentioned chaos as a god. Or a godlike being. Mm-hmm. So I think this is like our introduction to that whole concept. There is, and and one of the things that that chaos does is chaos creates the dragons uh, in the Urda version. Um, in the classic version, as I understood it, Paladine and Takesis had created the dragons together. She had corrupted them to evil, and then he had um, created the metallic dragons. But in yeah, this version, yeah. chaos is like. Uh, you got these puny mortals. I'm going to make these awesome dragons instead. Yeah, I, I much prefer the uh, Takesis and uh, Paladine creating them. Paladine created them. Takesis corrupted the first batch, so Paladine created them again to, to create his metallics. That's the story that I like better. It gives the dragons a much more central place in the mythology of Dragonlance, to do it that way. And also, if... Chaos had created the dragons. Why is Takesis the five-headed dragon? You know, that's a little... That didn't quite fit. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. And why are they good and evil? Why aren't they all just chaos (laughs) incarnate? Yeah. Um, Then we get the history of the Grey Gem, which is overly complicated. It's like this whole long, elaborate string of events that eventually leads to the Grey Gem being created and then uh, with the intention of capturing the essence of neutrality inside it. Which ends up being chaos. Reorx is apparently trying to just catch a little piece of chaos, and he ends up catching all of chaos and trapping him in the great jump. A wee bit is a all wee he's bit going for. Of chaos. Yeah. A wee bit. Um, of course, the great gem cannot be controlled uh, because it is just so chaotic in its nature. So it flies around the world, causing all kinds of havoc. One of the most important things that it does is that. It is responsible for the creation of dwarves and kender. I also want to mention there is there is no reference to any sort of high god in this story. It's just chaos. Historically, besides this Urda version, um, the gods were called from beyond by the high god, um, or were created by the high god in some instances. So in my head view, uh, there was the high god and then after this book there was chaos because like i said i don't think chaos was mentioned as a god before so in my view the 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 high god was kind of like law and order and then chaos was also law and order 
I'm just kidding. Chaos was chaos. <laughs> so back to the story. So Usha arrives in Palanthus. I was just recently listening to this part again on the audiobook, and I was like, it's so mean that she gets sent to Palanthus with... She gets sent to the most crowded city in the world with, like, with no money, no idea of how anything works. Right. She just, She's like, never <laughs> seen dumped a there. person besides, you know, the, the dozen Erda. Yeah. We're just going to throw her into this <laughs> metropolis of 500,000 people or whatever. Sure, like, she'll oh, be fine. Poor Usha. It's a miracle she survived her first, like, hour there. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I guess they just ex- expected her to survive on her beauty. Yeah. yeah, everybody's like, "Oh, look at this exotic, golden-eyed." Yeah. So. Woman. Yeah, yeah. So let's point that out. So, uh, among the Erda, Usha is super ugly, but among humans, she's super beautiful. And her most striking features are, as you say, her golden eyes and her silver hair. So she ends up getting herself arrested because she doesn't understand how she doesn't understand the concept of paying for food. So she gets arrested, What's taken funny? to jail, <laughs> taken to jail where she meets Tasselhoff. Yeah, th- this is a an older, wiser Tasselhoff who has seen a lot of things. Yeah, um, he's lost friends. Uh, you know, he's been through war a couple times, and um, you know, he's he's wiser than most Kinder you're probably ever going to meet in the world. Let's bring in the story of of Raceland's daughter here. So, one of the second generation novellas is about. Caramon and Raislin after Raislin has taken the test at the Tower of High Sorcery. He and this mysterious, beautiful woman sort of magically seduce one another and they end up having a baby. Um, and then it gets revealed that the the woman that Raislin hooked up with was actually an Irda, um, which would make his Raislin's daughter half human, half Irda. Right. Um, and it was, I think the baby was born with golden eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like Raislin's. Right, which, you know, is not genetic, so wouldn't pass on to a child, but whatever. And in the fiction, the the in-world fiction is that um, the story of Raceland's daughter is kind of like an uh, an urban legend that gets passed around Ancelon. Yeah. So people within Ancelon are aware of the story of Raceland's daughter. Um, but Tasselhoff has heard this story, so he's like, oh, wow, you just, you look just like Raceland. And then, yeah. Um, and then, uh, of course, Dal- or Nusha has a letter for Dalimar. The guards find out that, that she has it. So they call for Mistress Jenna, who is uh, the owner of the Mageware shop, the daughter of Justarius of the Red Robes, and also Dalimar's lover. So they call for her to figure out what to do with Usha. And Tasselhoff is like, hey, don't you think she looks like Raceland? Maybe she's Raceland's daughter. And Jenna's like, okay, let's take him too. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and Why not? thus, thus do Tasselhoff and Usha both wind up in the tower in Palanthus. Um, from there, we will, from there, we break away to our two other most important characters who are, uh, Palin Majir, son of Karaman and Tika, and Steel Brightblade, son of Sturm and Kitiara. A, so at this point, Tannen Majir and Sturm Majir, uh, Palin's two brothers have become Knights of Tiki, or Knights of Tiki, Knights of Salamia, <laughs> and they. You're reading the alternate, uh, history version. <laughs> Well, this isn't about alternate timelines, Megan, damn it. Uh, and the two of them, Tannen and Sturm, Tannen and Sturm Majir, both get killed off screen, sort of before the novel even happens. Like, we, we enter the story after they are already dead. Palin is the only survivor of the battle. 
basically Tannen and Sturm, their platoon or their their squad or whatever was wiped out by Knights of Tachesis. Um, and Palin is literally the only survivor of the battle. Um, he's been captured by uh, a wizardess named Lilith, who is part of the Knights, who is part of the Knights of the Thorn, which is like the magical arm of the Knights of Tachesis. Steel and Palin meet kind of by accident. Um, they don't realize who one another is at first until um, Palin is Palin is tasked with identifying the bodies of the knights for burial, and uh, that's sort of how they realize who one another is. At the same time, uh, the Night Lord Lilith is trying to get the Staff of Magius from Palin. Um, Palin has had the Staff of Magius since his test of high sorcery when he was sort of given it by Raceland. Right. Which uh, the details can be found in the second generation book. Yeah. Um, the story or, is called The Legacy. Yes, The Legacy. Or uh, if you have the old tales, it is in The Magic of Kryn uh, with a scene of that on the cover, uh, which yes. is awesome. Yeah. Uh, there's some good, some quality Larry Elmore art right there. It's one of my favorites. It really is. So he refuses to give up the staff. Palin does. He refuses it to give it to the Night Lord. She learns that Palin and Steel are cousins. Uh, and this sends her, this upsets her because she has seen a, a vision or a prophecy in her seeing stones that indicates to her that these two people coming together, Palin and Steel, is basically going, basically is going to mean the downfall of the Knights of Tachesis. She wants them dead. She, of course, can't just kill Steel outright. Um, so her sort of plan is if, if Palin won't give her the staff of Magius, in return, she demands that he go to the tower in Palanthus, open up the portal, and let Tachesis into the world. Um, and Seal gets stuck escorting him on this fool's errand. If you're in the world of, if you're if you're on Kryn, and it's 25 years after the War of the Lions, so 22 years after the Blue Ladies' War in Legends, I would assume. I don't know, perhaps I'm incorrect in this, that if you are a wizard of any standing, let alone a high-ranking member of the Order of the Knights of Tachesis, Order of the Thorn, you would know what it takes to open a portal to the Abyss. And you can't just send a apprentice white robe <laughs> to open a portal to the Abyss. Right, but let me interrupt you for a second. Um, I don't think I don't think that Lilith intends that Palin should succeed. She intends that Palin and Steel should both die in the process. Like that they should die trying oh, to get into the tower. Okay. That's what yeah, yeah. that's what she wants. She wants them. She wants them dead. She wants them dead. Yeah. Because yeah. that'll get rid of her prophecy. Okay. Right. Um, and I have a note here that this is something that I was sort of thinking about that <laughs> that Lilith is kind of right from the beginning, but mm -hmm. she keeps getting <laughs> like everybody just keeps like ignoring her or telling her to shut up or like treating her like she's some lunatic, but she's, she's not exactly, I mean, she's sort of right. She's right for the wrong reason, but she's sort of, she's sort of seeing something that nobody else sees. Yeah. And it, and it, it is funny because like she, I always pictured her as like, kind of like, a, like the evil witch, you know, that kind of cackles madly. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, doing her, especially when she's doing like seeing stones and and doing her her prophecy. She's like type the stuff. she's like the witch from um from Robin Hood. If we want to if we want to really show how old we are, she's like the the witch from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Do you remember her? Uh huh. 
She's <laughs> like spitting blood and throwing bones and all that stuff. That's kind of her, kind of her yeah. vibe. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I agree. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that, you know, they killed two major characters. Um, they killed them off without a story, without background, just chapter open and they're dead. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the day when we had forums, um, my, my forum name was Raceland Rocks. So I've always been a, a huge fan of Raceland and of wizards in general. Um, so when Tannen and Sturm were, were killed off camera, um, unfortunately, personally, I just didn't care. <laughs> um, I did. I thought it was awesome that the the one of the brother, the one brother that I liked the most, Palin, he survived, and that's all I was excited about. Um, it it sets up like their death sets up, uh, you know, some good motivation, and I think that had this been three books, their deaths would have been more explained. Uh, there there probably was supposed to be some epic battle that was fought, and the novel. You know, novel one of three would have explained that battle. I was shocked. I was shocked when it happened. Like when I first read it as a kid, I first read it. I was shocked. But I wasn't like, I didn't feel like a strong attachment to Tan and Erstrom. Um, yeah. And as, a, as an adult going back and reading those stories, it's like, they're not bad characters, but there's not a lot to them. You know? Yeah. Um, it's Yeah, you, it's, you've got it's, a goofball one and you've got a serious <laughs> one. And yeah, that's about I mean, it. Even um, in the stories, Palin is the standout. Um, and his his connection to Raceland is always means that he's going to be the standout. And I think it was it was probably a, a logical progression. Um, and like you said, it gives it really sets up Palin's motivation. It, and it's sort of why Palin is it sort of Palin's sort of whole character arc in the novel is, you know, him. He starts from this low point where he feels like I'm my brothers died because I wasn't because I wasn't strong enough. Wasn't sort of strong like, how can I how can I become? Yeah, and it's like, how can I become stronger? I need to become stronger. I need to become stronger. And then, you know, it ends with him. You know, the strength was in him the whole time, of course. But, you know, some characters, like when you're writing, anybody who's written knows some characters just speak to you. And those are the characters that are always going to come to the surface. And I think that's how it was with Palin for Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Yeah, because we all know, we all know that Raistlin is Margaret's baby. Margaret mm-hmm. loves Raistlin. Um So... Who is she going to be more invested in writing a story about? The guys that just swing swords or the guy that's more like Raistlin and can <laughs> yeah, do all and, kinds of silly things? And he gets to be a white robe. He's a white robe, too. So he kind of gets to to fill in Tracy's, like, you know, desire to have a good guy character. Right. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I I love Palin Majir. Um, I use him in my games. Yeah, I, he's I, a really I'm good running. character in general. I'm running two different Dragonlance campaigns um, in the Age of Mortals, and I still use Palin. Uh, he has made appearances in one of them and will make an appearance in the others. Don't tell my players. <laughs> um, so after this event, Palin and Steel kind of go on their own little adventure together. Um, they go to Solace to bring back the bodies of Tannen and Sturm for burial. We get a little glimpse of... We get a little, like, we bump into Tannis. He happens to be in Solace, where he is kind of at this point in the story, Portheos Portheos is supposed to be the Speaker of the Suns. Alhana Starbreeze is supposed to be the Speaker of the Stars. Uh, they are married. She is pregnant with the child that is supposed to unite 
the two elven peoples together, but they have been conspired against and both uh, labeled as dark elves and sent into exile. Um, so they are currently holed up at the end of the last home while uh, while Alhana is giving birth. So we get a little bit of that, but we don't really go into much detail about what's going on in Palanthus or Syl- or what's going on in Qualanesti or Sylvanesti during right. the story. We just get a little glimpse. They mention they mention the fact that Tannis's son Gilfast is now the speaker of the speaker of the sun in Qualanesti, but we never go there. We never really get much more detail than that. When I first read this book and I hadn't read Second Generation yet, I was like, "What? Why is why is Tannis's son speaker? Why is Tannis's son the speaker? That barely makes any sense." But yeah. Um, the story of the sacrifice kind of explains how that comes to be. That's a pretty good story, too. I think It really is. And I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did, because like in real life, I, I hate talking about politics. I, I don't like <laughs> politics. And so I, I didn't think that a story about politics would interest me at all. Um, but Margaret and Tracy are, are masters of their craft. And they were they were able to tell a a very good story about a subject I have zero interest in, and and it made me like it. Yeah, it does. It leads to a lot of stuff. Even though even though Gilthas, the Speaker of the Sun, doesn't really play into this novel, it leads into the Puppet King novel, which is one of the Chaos War novels. It leads into um, a lot of the stuff that happens in the War of Souls trilogy is directly related to that. Um, and then the Elven Exiles trilogy. Elven Exiles is which is amazing. It it's a storyline that begins here, but doesn't really blossom into later novels. There's a really nice scene where um, Palin and and Palin and um, Caramon have a chat, and then they they Palin and Steel head off to Palanthus, where they just kind of stroll on into the Shoiken Grove to get to the <laughs> tower in Palanthus. <laughs> they 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 stroll like the best of them has ever strolled before. I mean, I what they're going for is the idea that Raceland is sort of like protecting Palin and that's sort of how Palin I guess that's supposed to be how Palin does it but I mean Chrysania needed yeah. a special charm to get in Kitiara needed a night jewel to get in they were both invited by Raislin but they still had to <laughs> they still didn't just stroll yeah I mean they it was hard for them and you know all these years later again this is maybe that was expanded upon mm-hmm. or supposed to be expanded upon so Palin and Steel, they eventually make their way into the the, ca- the tower. They bump into Usha and Tass. Palin sees Usha and is uh, falls in love at first sight. At this point, Usha is trying to is is kind of trying to play up. Is trying to play into this connection that she really is Raceland's daughter because she understands that Raceland is somebody that people respect and fear. So if they think that mm-hmm. she is Raceland's daughter, then they will treat her better than she has been treated so far. So she's kind of playing into this story. And so that is how Palin gets introduced to her as Raceland's daughter. And so he right. meets this beautiful woman and he falls instantly in love with her and then finds out she's his cousin. Um, and he's, so he's not too happy about that. So we get to the, we get to the laboratory. The, the guardian that Dalimar set is gone. is just sort of pieced out. This was a big plot point in the legacy. Like how does Palin get past this yeah. guardian in order to get into the laboratory? But in this one, they just kind of, he's just not there. I guess it makes sense. I mean, they don't want to do the same story over again from the legacy. Right. And, you know, perhaps, again, Raceland dismissed the Guardians so Palin could enter. Yeah. Tass, Palin, and Stern, sorry, Tass, Palin, and Steel all try to enter the laboratory. Palin and Tass make it in. Steel, get, Steel and Usha get shut out. 
um, and they cannot enter. Uh, the portal to the abyss is already open, having been opened by Tiki, uh, sorry, opened by Raceland from the other side. In every Weiss and Hickman story, nearly every story, it's super easy to get into the abyss, except for the Legends trilogy, where you have to have the <laughs> black robe wizard and the white robe cleric, because it happens. They, they, all the damn somebody's time. always somebody's always got to be first through the door. That's what it is. Like, yeah, <laughs> they got. Yeah. <laughs> There's always somebody trying to get into the abyss, and it just happens. <laughs> um, never mind the rules set out by the gods. You know, all those millennia ago, those don't matter anymore. <laughs> um, whatever fits the story. So Usha has had enough of the tower. She uses the, an, a magical artifact that the Irda gave her to escape the tower. She bumps into Dugan Redhammer, of all people, on the street in Palanthus. He finagles her into the Thieves' Guild. Um, uh, which yeah. is kind of a... I don't know. It doesn't make a whole ton of sense, this chain of events. I think the idea is to sort of give Usha something to do for the rest of the novels. She's kind of fulfilled her story purpose at this point, but we don't want to have her just sitting around doing nothing. So yeah. I guess the idea was to give Usha some purpose to the novel. So they kind of, I mean, may, again, this could be one, this could be one of those things that would have made more sense if they'd been able to elaborate it in a novel. Like maybe we've got, would have gotten a better sense of like Dugan searching her out and like choosing her for this role or whatever. Uh, Palin and yeah. Tass make it, make it into the abyss. They find Raceland. Well, in world, there's different opinions on what happened to Raceland. Some people think that Raceland is going to be tortured for all eternity. That's sort of what Test of the Twins leaves off on the idea that Raceland is going to be tortured for all eternity right because um, at the end of the legends trilogy raceland is torn apart by Takesis as she is searching for his soul to devour yeah and she can't find it because paladine has it and is protecting him that's that's how i viewed it that that was my interpretation of the story so caramon thinks he's Correct. dead some people think that he's being tortured palin feels that Raceland is communicating with him in some way, suggesting that Raceland is not dead, of course. Once Palin actually gets into the abyss, he finds uh Palin, he finds Raceland alive, not being tortured, which is good. He's sort of he's alive, he's stuck in the abyss, but he's being protected by Paladine, so that that's why he's like not being tortured forever. He's just kind of chilling in the abyss for the most part. Yeah, that's that's not much better. Like, I'm just going to spend eternity in the abyss? I don't know. Um, but he he tells Palin, like, hey, the gods are all down here. They're having a meeting. Let's go listen. The group goes and um, they, like, listen to what the gods are talking about. This is how this is how Palin and Raceland learn about, about chaos. Um, and they also learn that the gods basically have decided that if... If humanity is going to have a chance of defeating chaos, they need to be united. And the fastest, most expedient way to do that is to let the Knights of Tachesis take over the world. Yep. Um, unite the people of Ancelon through force so that they can defend against chaos. Yeah, which when I first read that, I thought that was awesome. Like I was rooting. <laughs> I was rooting for the Knights of Tachesis. The like, Knights of Tachesis is like... And they're they're, they're the bad people. guys. <laughs> they're the bad guys, but they're so cool that you can't not like them. You know? Yeah. And they're like just they black armor with skulls on it and death lilies, and they're they're badasses. It's like you can't not like them. I'm sorry. I guess that's sort of the point. You're not supposed to really dislike the Knights of Tachesis, at least in this novel. I don't think so. Honestly, I think they were written in such a way that like they're not so much 
villains and and bad guys is kind of like anti heroes. Yeah, like the, the other side of the coin from the Knights of Slamia. Yeah, that's yeah. true. They get a bit more evil as the novels go on, but in this one, they're kind of like they're Knights of Salamia that love Tachesis instead of Paladine. Right, and, and later in the novels, they they lose their honor. They lose a lot of what makes me that made me fall in love with them. You know, because I thought the the idea, the concept of an evil knighthood that can still be honorable, and like it fascinated me. when i was younger you know and Mm -hmm. now it's you know in later years as you get through the the age of mortals it's like they turn to murder and there's just thugs and there's not really much to them i mean it's kind of like a real cult of personality almost um around arayakin like without him yeah it's sort of 100 it's without him what it's meant they lose their vision yeah ha For those that don't um, know, um, they're all given a vision from Tachesis. And, yeah. you know, after this story, uh, the things that happen next, they, they lose the ability for their vision because there's no Tachesis to give it to them. Yeah. And Tachesis is really playing the knights. You know, she doesn't care about honor or justice or she just sees them as a, she sees them the same way that she saw the dragon orcs, which is as a tool to conquer. I guess without strong personality like Arayakin steering them in the right direction, that kind of ethos is always going to crumble. And that's eventually what happens. They get co-opted by the by the dragon overlords. And then they really go evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're really, like, I don't know. They're, I, I feel like they lose a lot of status um, and coolness in, in the Fifth Age under the mm-hmm. dragon high lords. Like, they're always just subservient. Uh, they are not out to conquer anything because they're always themselves serving a different master. So after this meeting, Kitiara, the ghost of Kitiara of all people shows up, um, attacks Palin. He gets stabbed with an, an abyss sword, like Frodo getting stabbed with a Morgul blade on Weathertop. And in order to save Palin's life, Raceland has to leave the abyss. And once he does, he can't get back in. And he, which sounds good, but he's kind of bummed because now that he's in the real world, he doesn't have his magic anymore. Um, right. So I guess, you know, you take the good with the bad. But Palin gets saved, so that's good. Yep, that's the facts of life. <laughs> um, so the time that Raceland and, and Palin, or the time that Palin and Tass are in the abyss together, although it feels like hours to them, it's really, I think it's really like a month um, for, the, for the real world. Um, so we're going to rewind time a little bit. Um, some of these events are sort of happening simultaneously. But Steel, uh, Steel is back in the tower. We learned that Steel kind of chickened out. He was afraid to go into the laboratory. Um, and this sort of guilt is going to haunt him for the rest of the novel that he, at the moment that he needed to be the bravest, he chickened out. Yeah, that moment of hesitation is uh, referenced throughout the rest of this book. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it's pounded home. Like that was yeah. his moment to shine and he botched it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, chill, dude. You know, it's a, it's a scary place. You hesitated for half a heartbeat, you know. Whatever, but he's not good enough. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's wound so tightly that it's going to haunt him for the rest of the novel. Steel meets Dalimar, which is (laughs) which is an interesting meeting because Dalimar with both was was both hooking up with Steel's mom and also killed Steel's mom. So that's kind of an awkward meeting. Right. He's like, hey, Um, I could have almost been your daddy. Um, Steel gets summoned back to the Knights of Tachesis by um, his sub commander, who's like. Who like FaceTimes Dalimar and uh tries to get to get Steel to come back 
to the to the knights. Um, we get a little reference here to Lord Soth, um, basically as Steel is talking to Sub Commander Trevelyn on video chat as they're skyping. Lord Soth is like hanging out behind Trevelyn, mm-hmm. kind of which is, uh, I mean, the Ravenloft continuity with Soth is is fuzzy by design. So part of it is like, well, isn't isn't Soth supposed to be in Ravenloft at this time? But then we know that Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman don't like to treat that as canon. But then the the actual Lord Soth Ravenloft novels, it's never really clear how long Soth is in Ravenloft or whether like he whether he leaves Kryn and then whether he leaves Kryn and spends a couple of decades in Ravenloft. And then when he comes back to Kryn, it's like five minutes later. Um, right. So it doesn't it's say very, how long it's he's very been murky, but yeah, it's very murky. But yeah. I just like to, it's just something I thought would be fun to point out for Lord Soth nerds. Yeah. Well, you know, check out Shadow of the Black Rose available now <laughs> on DM's Guild. <laughs> Plug. Um, the the fact that you know, Palin and Tass are in the abyss for what they feel like is a few minutes, and it's been a month. Um, for Lord Soth to go to Ravenloft and create a whole domain. Um, and spend all that time there, you know, time might flow differently there. So he might be back on Corinne within uh, two months after his departure, um, you know, at the the start of Night of the Black Rose. It's never explained when yeah, on Corinne's timeline Soth returns. Yeah, and it's it, it's never really supposed to be explained. It's supposed to be, you know, it's Very supposed ambiguous. to be nebulous so that you can make it whatever you want. Yeah, so DMs out there, Anytime after the Blue Ladies War, you can have Lord Soth there because time works differently on different planes. Don't yeah. be afraid to use Lord Soth. Yeah. Um, and even if Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman don't like it, they're not going to come to your house and yell at you. Hopefully. <laughs> um, okay, Unless you so live then... nearby. If you live nearby, <laughs> they might see you at the store. You're down at Walmart. Like, I heard about I heard about this Dragonlance campaign you're running. It's all everybody's it's all anybody's talking about. It's all anybody's talking about. It's, <laughs> it's on the New York Times front page. How dare you? So Steel gets Steel goes back to the High Claris Tower where he's put on trial. Um, the idea is that because he lost his prisoner, aka Palin, he has to die in Palin's place. Uh, Lord Ryken, however, he has a soft spot for Steel. Steel is kind of like a surrogate son to him. Um, so, and he knows that, he knows that Steel is, is honorable. He's a good knight. He doesn't want Steel to die. This just kind of like crummy death. Um, so what he does yeah. is he, he sentences Steel to die, but he says that the sentence is not going to be carried out for a month. Um, and then he assigns Steel to be like leading the front lines and the assault on the High Claris Tower. Um, the idea being behind all this is that, um, Steel will get a chance instead of dying, uh, by execution, Steel will get a chance to die in battle, which is what Steel wants. So this is seen as a this is seen as a good thing. This is seen as uh, Arikin doing something, doing a Steel a solid, basically. Yeah, allowing him to at least regain some of his honor in death. The next day, the tower is attacked. Steel leads the frontal assault um, into the tower. During the first battle. Steel and Tannis come face to face on the battlefield inside the tower, and Tannis gets stabbed in the back by one of the uh, by one of the Knights of Takesis foot soldiers, one of the brutes, and uh, Tannis basically dies in Steel's arms. I don't. They never really play into this, but uh, Steel's sub commander thinks that Steel is the one that killed Tannis. 
never yeah, really comes he, he, up. He like, congratulates him, right? Yeah, yeah, he congratulates him. It never really plays into the story at any point, but no, um, I thought that would have been interesting if Steel had gotten the reputation as being the person who killed Tannis Elven. Right, especially since it's you know Steel's admittance into the knighthood as described in the the story Kitiara's son was heavily influenced by Tannis as they were at the High Clare's Tower and visited his father's tomb and all that. Um, so the fact that he he's reported to have killed Tannis, like that's like, yeah, get him, boy. Uh, the Knights of Takesis eventually do win the battle. The High Clare's Tower falls for the first time in history. Um, and they feel like, oh, it's because we're so great. We readers know that it's actually because the gods are tinkering behind the scenes. The good dragons are sent away. Um, basically leaving the tower without the defenses of the dragon, of the good dragons. Um, they take mm-hmm. the High Clarus Tower, which means that they have basically taken the High Clarus Tower means they take Palanthus. And, and from there, it's you know, um, the the High Clarus Tower is the 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 guardian of the city of Palanthus. So once it mm-hmm. falls, yeah, Palanthus is just a snap away. Steel accidentally survives the battle he's not meant to survive but he does um and he ends up putting being put into prison with the other salamic pow's um to basically wait for his wait for the one month to pass before he's executed while he's in prison with the knights of salamia he he kind of earns their grudging respect they can see that he's uh he's an honorable guy even if he's the enemy so um he kind of wins their respect a bit let us uh let us not bury the lead how do we feel about the death of Tannis half Elven in this scene. Um, because this is a controversial thing among Dragonlance fans. I it's, noticed it's very controversial, and um, I unfortunately am going to feed right into it because mm-hmm. honestly, I didn't care. Um, I was care. not a huge. I was not a huge fan of Tannis. Oh my god, get out, you poser! You're not a real Dragonlance fan. I was not a huge fan of Tannis. <laughs> um. And and it it kind of irked me that he was killed by some random nameless person. Um, you know, I I thought it at least uh, it would have been better. I think if Steel had been the guy that put the sword through him, that way you know at least there's some story, some history behind it. Um, but the fact that he was talking to Steel on the battlements literally having a conversation and then he gets ran through from behind by, you know, um, tarmac four Oh seven, six, two, um, <laughs> just like what, you know, uh, not uh, every I, hero gets a hero with death. Yeah. You know, I mean, but when I read it the first time I was shocked, I was shocked. I was sad. Cause I really did like Tannis. Um, and, but I'm I never, sorry. <laughs> I never had this feeling like it was I didn't realize this was a controversy until I became aware of, you know, internet forums and stuff because um, you know, people die in war. It, it doesn't make it less heroic the fact that he was killed by some, you know, by just a random grunt, you know. People get killed by random grunts in real wars and they're still it's still seen as like a heroic sacrifice. I don't know why it's I guess people I mean, I understand people wanted Tannis to go out on a higher note than that. You know, they wanted him yeah. to have his like Obi-Wan fighting Darth Vader moment. Right. And I can see that is as much as I, I, I didn't care for Tannis. I can see what the, the people wanted more from his death. Um, yeah. I, I 100% and can see that. Um, 
I just personally, uh, eh, whatever. I mean, I love, I love Tannis and I didn't feel like it was a cheap death. I feel like, you know, he was in a big battle and he died in the big battle and that's what happens. I know, uh, but... he, he died in a historic battle. The, the first time the, the high clear's tower fell, Tannis fell. Yeah. So, I mean, it is what it is. It's sad. It's sad. I understand both perspectives. I would have liked for him to not have died, but I, it, it didn't bother me. It doesn't, it didn't bother me then that it was some random guy. It doesn't bother me now, but I do understand why some people do feel bothered by it. Yeah. I mean, if he would have survived, it would have just led to more stories about him crying. <laughs> okay. Let us move on from Tannis then, now that we have uh, definitively solved that issue for all time. <laughs> it is definitively <laughs> solved. Less crying with a dead Tannis. Got it. Um, so Palin, Raceland, and Tass make their way back from the Abyss. They find out that a month has passed on Ancelon and that, or a month has passed on Kryn and that the Knights control Palanthus as well as most of Ancelon. Um, Palin and, uh, Palin and, uh, Raceland go back to Solace. Raceland and uh Caramon have a uh have a reunion and there's much uh much feelings. Um this it, so this gets me still to this day. If I were to take this damn book off the shelf, <laughs> flip flip to the end of this chapter and read Can You Forgive Me? Yeah. I am going to break down. Aww. I guarantee <laughs> it. This this is the first like when Sturm died, yeah, that sucked. Mm-hmm. When Flint died, that sucked. When Tannis died, I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't care. So <laughs> but mean. I, I, I'm a forever DM. I have so to be heartless. mean. I have to be mean. <laughs> um, but when Raceland appears to Caramon and he's standing on the doorstep to the inn after the, what they've been through with the legends and with Raceland's test. Uh, when he says, can you forgive me? Oh my God. <laughs> that at, in the beginning of Raceland or the beginning of legends, when Caraman's writing him letters, you know, they get returned. I have no brother. I have mm-hmm. no brother, you know, and for him to come in and, and ask his brother for forgiveness. It is, Oh my God. It's so good. It's, it's getting me emotional. Just talking about <laughs> it right now. Um, because I I picture it, right? As I'm reading a book, I picture it in my mind as playing out as mm-hmm. a movie. And I, I see this scene where he he's standing in the shadows and his, his soft voice, Caraman, can you forgive? And Caraman yells and throws the door open and rushes out to him. It's, it, it literally doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I had more to say, but I, you said everything that I think you you hit the nail on the head. Well, there's nothing more that I need to say. Uh, looking through my books here, that yeah, that's by far the most powerful scene I've ever read in any book. This point in the novel, there's Grayson has a bunch of these little side quests he goes on, um, and I feel like a lot of this. <laughs> I feel like this this kind of shows where there's a bit of um. Where there's, I, I feel like there's a bit of rushing things that probably would have been expanded a bit more in a, mm-hmm. in um, in a, a full trilogy. trilogy. Yeah, 
for real. Raceland supposedly has like a bunch of magical artifacts that were left to him as gifts, as like tributes. Um, I assume that is these, so cool. I assume these magical items are the reason that Raceland is able to just travel at will all over the world. He goes. One of the places that he goes is he. So he's heard this story of he's heard about Usha from Palin, and he's wondering. He's like, okay, I need to go meet this girl for myself and figure out what her deal is. Um, so he winds up in Palanthus. He goes to the Thieves Guild, um, where he meets he meets Usha for himself, um, and he talks to her. And Raceland has used his magic or whatever to um, to figure out where Usha really came from. Um, and the story he tells her is that she was like the daughter of some some people that were captured by Minotaurs, I guess, and she was their baby and the mother the mother jumped overboard with Usha in her arms and they washed up on the Irda Island. The mother died, or maybe the both parents died on the Usha, on the Irda Islands, but the Irda decided to keep Usha and raise her. Um and the fact that she has gold eyes and silver hair like Raceland is just it's just a coincidence. She just happens to have gold hair and silver eyes gold eyes and silver hair. It's not she's not his she's not his daughter. It's just a coincidence. Um right. And it's it's kind of a nice moment because I mean I feel like there's a little bit of a connection between the two of them anyway. Where Raceland is kind of feeling like you know if I was going to have a daughter, she seems like a cool daughter, and she's like, if I had a dad, he seems like a kind of a cool dad. But oh well. But on the bright side, hey, they're not cousins anymore, so they can get married. Uh, Palin and Palin and Usha. Right. And and one of my favorite lines in this in this book is when you know Raceland is thinking about the legend of Raceland's daughter, and he says something like, you know. Um, I'm going to summarize it in modern terms. I hook up with this super gorgeous hot chick and I don't even remember it. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a good line. It's like just my luck <laughs> that right. I should, that I should uh, have a daughter with the most beautiful woman anyone's ever seen. And I don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. Like here's my chance. Here's my one shot and I blew it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to throw out a controversial opinion. This, this is a hill that I'm willing to die on even though I'm the only person in the world that feels this way. Even Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman don't feel this way. I think Raceland is lying to Usha. I think that she is his daughter. And I think that he's lying because he knows that, because he knows that Palin's in love with her and he doesn't want things to be, to be weird for Palin. So he just tells this lie to make them think that they aren't really cousins because he knows that they love each other and they want to get, so that they can get married and not feel weird about it. I think there's too many clues that point to that point to Raceland being her her father and too many clues <clears throat> excuse me too many clues that point to the truth of the Raceland's daughter story um because when there, there's there's weird clues in the so Raceland's daughter ends with baby baby Raceland Raceland Jr being picked up by an Irda man um and then on the Irda island Usha is raised by an Irda man and this Irda man is called the Protector, and he is explicitly stated as having had a sister who died under some tragic circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the story that it it explains, you know, it explains who this sister is that the Protector had. It explains why the Protector is so devoted to Usha because she is his his niece. It explains why Usha is so phenomenally beautiful because she's half Irda. And explains why she's got the gold eyes and she's got the silver hair. And the story that Raceland tells her, you know, it's Raceland telling her the story. Now we are, we the audience are sitting there at the table listening to Raceland tell Usha this story. It's not like we're seeing this as some third person omniscient 
view of what happened to Usha. You know, it's not like a flashback or something. Right. The, it's the, just only, words. the only story we get is right is Raceland's version of what happened. And so, we all know that uh, you know, Raceland did wear the black robes. He's, yeah, I he's mean, not above lying. Raceland's not. He is is and always will be morally gray. And I think that for Raceland, I can imagine Raceland being like, I am going to tell this lie for what I think is the greater good, which is that these two people get to be together. These two people are cousins, you know. It's a little strange, but you know, it's the strangest thing to happen. It used to happen all it's, the time back in the real world. So, right, <laughs> right. I, I wonder if Crin has a uh, an eighteen seventies Alabama. <laughs> I mean, it's just you know, it it used to happen. There's no reason that that Raceland and Palin's, uh, sorry, that Oshet and Palin's child should be weird mutants or anything. You know, plenty of people first cousins. Any people whose parents were first cousins, I imagine it probably happens a lot more frequently in in other countries than it does in the United States. And we're not, it's not a whole bunch of mutants running around. So, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm not gonna dissuade you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna dissuade you from that because it could 100% be it's within Raceland's character to a uh, Raceland is a a huge fan of Palin mm-hmm. as we've already seen. All right, he has a staff. He's gotten rid of guardians. He's allowed Palin a lot of things that other any other person would have never dreamed of. Um, so he's a big fan of Palin, and he he's not above you know telling a little bit of a lie if it's not good. Yeah, I think in his mind it's a white lie for the greater good. It's like you know it's not going to hurt anybody. They're going to be happy. Yeah, the world is about to end, so why not? The world is about to end. <laughs> Whatever and then the world doesn't end, he's like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, yeah. Whatever three-armed <laughs> baby, my daughter, they might and my have. my daughter, and my nephew are getting married. Oh shit! <laughs> uh, yeah, the three-armed baby was only wasn't going to be around much longer anyway. So it, it would never be born. The world's about to end. It's fine. Just let them have their book up. It's fine. So I so that is my opinion. I think that race. I think Usha is in fact Raceland's daughter. I understand that I'm in the minority. I understand that even the authors. <laughs> don't don't agree with my assessment that's okay when you write a piece of fiction it becomes it becomes the the it becomes the possession of whoever's reading it and in my right. version of dragons of summer flame she is his daughter they're not always right margaret and yeah. tracy i love you to death <laughs> but they're not always right okay so i'm going to move us quickly through the rest of the story because the the story is kind of coming to a head at this point palin palin learns that steel is going to be executed in his place he goes to the tower to save him um, there's a little bit of back and forth about like Usha and, and Tass trying to save Palin and Steel going to visit Palin and accidentally being mistaken as part of this conspiracy to rescue him. Um, it's a little bit touch and go about whether Steel is going to be executed yet or attempt to be executed yet again. We get this sort of like, we, we kind of see a bit of in, in a bit into Steel's mind where Steel kind of like doesn't want to die exactly, but is he never does anything to stop himself from getting killed, you know, like, he feels so guilty about this moment of hesitation that he had on the threshold of the laboratory. Yeah, Plus just the kind of like conflict in his soul. Like they described as like his mother's side and his father's side are like constantly at war with one another. So Steel like doesn't really know who he is. Steel doesn't know who he is and his identity is a knight. His, so the, the sum total of Steel's identity is Knight of Tachesis. And when he feels like he failed as a Knight of Tachesis, he completely loses any sense of his own identity. And then he's just like, okay, just kill me. Just execute me. Fine. Whatever. I don't care anymore. Right. Like he knows that he, 
you know, he understands the laws of the knighthood. He failed mm-hmm. uh, by law, you know, according to the knighthood. You know, you, you fail to do this, you will die in your prisoner's place, and Steel is 100% on board with that. He says, I understand that. I accept that. That is my fate. Um, I, my, my life is in your hands. So he, he is the epitome of lawful evil. Uh, if yeah. you're looking at D&D alignments, he <laughs> is the epitome of lawful evil. It does not happen that he gets executed. Uh, chaos happens to attack the tower at just that moment, interrupting the whole, interrupting the whole event. Chaos attacks. Arayken hears Palin's story about chaos and is like, oh, dang it. Maybe this is, maybe this is it. Maybe Palin's telling the truth. So uh, Arayken runs off to go be part of the battle. Uh, Raceland shows up, saves, saves Palin, Tass, and Usha. Palin, uh, sorry, Steel and Raceland have like a, uh, Palin and, oh my God, I keep getting the names mixed up. Raceland and Steel have this like really nice moment together that I really like where, um, where Raceland is talking to Steel about Sturm and Raceland is pointing out to Steel that like Sturm wasn't really a true knight for most of his life, but that he, he lived as if he was and that Sturm, even when he wasn't a knight for real, he he understood who he was. He knew who he was. Um, and Raceland points out to to Steel that Steel doesn't know who he is, and that kind of like finally breaks down Steel's like emotional armor. Yeah. Later, Steel is going to get a visit from Kitiara's spirit, who's like, "Hey, you know, Takesis is like Takesis is getting out of here. This is a sinking ship. Takesis is going to go off and start a new planet. She's taking her favorites with her. She's taking me." She's gonna, she'll take you too if you want. Um, and Steel won't do it. He doesn't want to leave behind. He doesn't want to leave Kryn behind. So he refuses to do it. He gets a visit. I think he gets a visit from Sturm's spirit afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. and that's sort of how, so the, the short version is that Steel and his like night buddies, they get set aside during the final battle with Chaos so that when Chaos attacks the tower and most of the knighthood is destroyed, Steel and his Talon and his dragons, they are basically the only survivors at the tower, along with the Knights of Salamnia, who were the POWs that were captured during the first battle. Right. Um, so they're alive, they're still fighting fit, while most of the Knights of Takesis are dead, including Arayakin. Man, this battle with the, the Shadow Whites that remove people's memory from existence... Mm. That's you, scary. You That's want to scary. talk about a cool freaking monster <laughs> holy imagine, cow imagine throwing that against your players i want to do that now now that i'm thinking about that i want to do that in one of my adventures well like, they, not only in the age of mortals campaign they're in there they're in the yeah. price of courage um yeah. that's and that's scary that's a chapter my players have not been to yet that's one of the two <laughs> chapters they haven't done yet so i've got a 50 percent chance of them going there next mm-hmm. um so i need to write up stats for shadow whites for one mm-hmm. Um, to to use against them because how how utterly terrifying is yeah. that? Like have you that... as the reader, you see it, you know what's happening, and nobody else. Like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> just There's empty, a suit of armor ar- that just hit yeah. the ground. Empty armor, and nobody can remember who was who in, it. in the hell was in it. <laughs> who was my mother? Who was my father? <laughs> like I know, I I I know I have to have a father. Where where are they? <laughs> I don't remember a thing about them and nobody can tell me anything. How awesome is that? 
you know, it'd be a really cool idea in a campaign as in a game is to have like, um, like, let's say the, the, the characters are, are teamed up with some NPC, um, and that NPC gets killed by a shadow white. And then you, you tell your players, like, your characters don't remember who that person was anymore. Like they've completely been erased from your memory. That would, that would mess with players, I think. Yeah. Like you, and if it's somebody super important to the story, that makes it even better. Like you can't, you can't like talk about anything they told you because you don't know it. Yeah. You can't reference this person ever again because you don't know them. You've never, they've never existed. That's amazing. It really Um, is. That's, that's, out of my favorite things that came out of the Chaos War and in this whole scenario, the Summer Flame, my favorite absolute thing is Shadow Whites. So that's what Steel is up to. Steel is back at the tower. He teams up with the other knights, the surviving knights. Uh, meanwhile, Palin is given Magius' spell book. Um, he and uh, he and Usha and Tass hop back onto um, Usha's boat to go back to the Irida Island. Apparently, it can go back as well. They arrive at the Irida Island, which I guess is also in the Abyss. Like, I'm a little, I'm a little unclear on that. But the island gets transported. Like, it, it's sort of this weird liminal area. Like, the the Irida Island and the Abyss are sort of the same, sort of overlap at this point. They meet Dugan Redhammer. He tells them, or Raceland tells them, like, if you can catch a little bit of Chaos's blood in the Gray Gem and close it up. That will be enough to trap Chaos back in the Grey Gem. Oh, by the way, Chaos at this point is like a is giant, like a giant giant, right? Like a bunch like, of a bunch of giants standing on top of each other is how big Chaos is at this point. Um, yeah, like taller than mountains, like giant, yeah. like he's and massive. He's, um, he's sending out fire dragons and shadow whites and demon warriors to basically destroy and burn everything on Kryn. So we are seeing like this little this little piece of the battle with our heroes going up against Chaos in his kind of like humanoid form. Uh but you can imagine that the the the, the rest of the entire world is fighting Chaos. Like the the battle at the High Claris Tower where um Chaos's forces attacked and killed Ariakan and the Shadow Whites attacked and all that. That's happening everywhere. We only see like the one part of it, but it's happening in all the kingdoms across all of Kryn. Right, in in some of the uh, the other novels um, yeah. that take place during this time, describes those fights. Uh, the Reavers yeah. of the Blood Sea um, is about the Minotaur Islands um, during this battle. You know, they they had to fight the the Magori, uh, is how I've always pronounced it, which are like these crab people that are chaos spawned um, entities. Uh, so they have this final confrontation. Uh, Palin casts a spell for Magius' spellbook in order to, to blind Chaos. Uh, Steel shows up with the other knights. He flies in on his blue dragon. He slices, he slices at Chaos with the bright blade, drawing blood. <laughs> and then the blood, Steel's dragon is killed during the process and Steel goes crashing to the ground. <laughs> the blood falls in the dirt, gets sucked up making this whole thing pointless. Yeah, he <laughs> missed it. Missed it by that much. Yeah, it's like missed it, missed it Oh, by that you were so close, Steel. You're so close. Yeah, um, they're trying to catch the blood in the Grey Gym and just uh, it was just out of arm's reach. So what happens? Chaos lifts up his foot to stomp on everybody. Tasselhoff runs underneath him with his little rabbit slayer dagger, stabs him in the toe. 
the blood drips into the gray gem. Usha closes the gray gem, and that traps chaos inside once again. Right as he steps on Tass and kills him. Forever. Right as he steps on, kills him forever. He never returns. Um, ever. Ever. He's like he's got he's got Rabbit Slayer in one hand, and he's holding it up to stab chaos in the toe. And in the other hand, he's got the device of time journeying and he's playing around with it and being like, Oh, you know what? I have to go to Caramon's funeral in the future. Let me just, let me just do this. That's, that's what happened. That's what's happening. And nobody notices. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. So retconning fine. It's, I don't care about retconning, but I do. I mean, I understand that they want Tass to have this, like, I mean, Tass gets the epic death that Tannis didn't, you know? That's Task very gets true. Task gets to die saving the world. I kind of think it should have been Steel. Not only because I love Steel, but I I kind of think that that series of events with Palin casting his spell, Steel flying in and sacrificing his life to wound chaos, the blood dripping down and Usha closing it, that would have been, I feel like that would have been the right ending to that. I kind of feel like they just wanted has to have this heroic noble self-sacrifice death and i feel like it kind of got shoehorned in i think just in terms of just dramatic purposes i mean you got your three your three children of the lance working together to defeat chaos right and it kind of just kind of just turns into nothing you know imagine how more epic this battle would have been would have been in a three volume set (laughs) perhaps perhaps that's true i suppose could have been drawn out a bit more i thought it was awesome um, it I, is. I, I mean, it's definitely fight. an awesome scene. The, the, yeah. Like I said, I, I I picture these things as I'm reading them, and like even now, you know, I haven't read this book in a minute. It's been a while since I read Summer Flame, but even now, I can see in my mind's eye that this fight happening and all these puny dragons attacking yeah. this mountain-sized god, and yeah. as he stomps down, this one little blink <laughs> of blood. Why do gods bleed? To be honest, um, he had to take he had to take partially mortal form in order to appear or something. That's that's how they justify it. That's how they, <laughs> it's like, why don't you just stay as a nebulous blob of fire? Right. And they couldn't have hurt you. They can't hurt you. Um, <laughs> why don't you just go float up in space? <laughs> right, and nuke the world from orbit. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean. It's fine. Tasselhoff sacrifices his life, saves the day. That's a fine ending for Tasselhoff. I feel like I was a little bit shoehorned in, but it's not. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. He's fine. I'm fine. We're all fine. We're all fine. Uh, The only thing that's not fine is the rest of the world, because um, once the Grey Gem is closed, chaos is banished. Palin wakes up, finding himself back in solace with Usha and all the dead knights laying around him. He... (laughs) <laughs> so this is how I described it in my notes. I hope you appreciate this this line here. Oh, so the this he wakes up, the stars in the sky are weird, the the moon the moons are gone. There's now only a single white moon that is weird. The staff of Magius doesn't like work right anymore. Uh and, and as Usha and Palin are standing there wondering what's going on, uh Takesis appears, uh dressed in a wizard costume that she got from the Halloween store. Uh she's wearing a fake beard. Um, and pretending to be Fizban. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and quote unquote Fizban, uh, tells Palin that the gods are leaving Kryn forever, that magic is going with them, that the age of mortals is about to begin, uh, and that it is going to be the best age because Fizban slash Takesis apparently doesn't know about the giant dragon overlords that are about to show up and make 
things much, much worse. And then she, he, they leave. Um, a monument is built in Solace in memory of the knights who died in the final battle against Chaos, as well as Tannis and as well as Tasselhoff. And that's the end of the Dragonlance series. The end. Forever. <laughs> so uh, obviously I am being very facetious here. When the when you're reading the novel, it's just Fizban. Fizban shows up. Paladine Fizban shows up, explains to Palin and, and Usha what's going on, saying, oh, well, now that chaos is chaos is gone, he's been defeated. Good job. But us humans have or us gods have to leave as well. Um, there's not going to be any more magic. There's not going to be any more divine healing in the world. Um, humans are on their own. And it, it kind of turns Dragonlance from a fantasy setting into a just kind of like the real world. You know, there's so, one moon, there's no magic. Gods are gone. And th this might be, <laughs> this might be, I don't know, weird, naive or whatever. But when they described this, when I first read this, when it first, literally when it first came out, two days after it came out and I'm finishing this book, I thought that like they were somehow like on or near Earth. With, with the one moon, you know, described mm -hmm. the way it was, I was like, holy cow, did they somehow <laughs> move Dragonlance to Earth? Somehow. Come to find out, I wouldn't have been terribly wrong uh, or too far off from that. Um, but yeah, we don't hear, we don't know that it's Takesis doing this um, until much later. Uh, the War yeah. of Souls. I mean, it's it's not it's not Takesis. You know, when it was originally written, it was not intended that it, this should be Takesis pretending to right. be his man. That was a retcon that they made up yeah, later. Yeah, one hundred percent retcon. <laughs> um, so that's me being that's me being facetious. Nobody but, at the time, nobody thought this was Takesis, including Margaret Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman did not think correct. this was Takesis. This this is like an end to the Dragonlance story. At the end of Dragons of Summer Flame. Basically, the story of Dragonlance comes to an end. Forever. However, however, the publishing industry being what it is, Dragonlance kept going. We got the Age of Mortals novels. And then that was such a, I'm, I'm just going to say it, that was such a disaster that eventually they brought back Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman to write the War of Souls trilogy, which said, oh, no, it wasn't Fizban. It was Takesis the whole time. She stole the world from the other gods. That's what happened. Wink, it, was wink, the high, nudge, nudge. it was the high god. It was Takesis. It was this. It was that. It wasn't really any of that stuff. They just wanted to fix the setting. And they did. And I like that. I mean, I'm not saying I don't like those novels. I'm glad that they fixed the setting. I feel like this ending to Dragons of Summer Flame was a big misstep. They should not have tried to end the novel the way they did. I think that was a misstep. It should have just been, we defeated chaos. Yay. The end. You know, I, I can agree with that. Um, although I did, I, I literally just a couple days ago, I finished the dragons of a new age trilogy and it's not as bad as I remembered it being. Mm. Um, I'm You're nicer than I am. I'm still not a fan <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of what happened, but I don't know. It I, I've read much worse. I've read uh, much worse. Have you? I have. have you? <laughs> I have. I've read Fist and Analyst Reborn. <laughs> I've read The Dark Queen. Uh, um, well, I mean, I okay, maybe, uh, maybe I haven't read those novels, so I'll I'll grant you that you may be right, but they're bad. I think those I think those novels are as bad as I remember them being. 
And I think that, yeah, I mean, it was just, they, they ended dragons of summer flame, leaving the story with nowhere to go. Yeah. And I think that was a mistake. And the natural byproduct of that is that when TSR or wizards of the coast, whoever it was at the time wanted to keep publishing more novels, they had to bend over backwards to make it work. And then when they realized that was a mistake, then they wrote the war of souls trilogy. They had to bend over backwards even further to fix everything. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I was recently on uh, the DL saga podcast with Adam. Um, and, and I described how for so many years I've been a Dragonlance super fan. So I might see things as, you know, through, through rose shaded glasses and I see them better than they are. But when, the New Age trilogy came out, and the Fifth Age box set, the Saga edition of Dragonlance came out. I I loved that stuff. Um, I couldn't find anybody to play it with me because nobody wanted to play D and D without dice and using these stupid cards. But I thought that game system was awesome. Like it won a ton of awards. It it was you know it, it was I don't know I I thought it was really good. And again, just reading that same it. Era- that same parallel universe, you and I could be playing Dragonlance Saga games. Fifth edition Dragonlance Saga. Yeah, and like I said, my players are at my mercy, so whenever I get done with whatever we're doing now, I might just bust it out, and they're either going to have to jump on board or quit. We'll see how that goes. Well, that's I mean, that's all I really have to say about Dragons of Summer Flame. Like we said at the beginning, this this novel sets up the whole sets up the Chaos War series which is this big event that spans all of all of Kryn and I think that because this novel and because this event because it happened at this weird point in TSR's history that the chaos war idea never really got a chance to blossom and I think and that is something that I lament because I think it's a really interesting fascinating part of Kryn's history um and I think that this summer of flame deserves a lot more love and a lot more attention than it gets. I agree with that. We should do more novels about the Summer of Chaos. I think that's a great idea. Wait, we should write more novels or we should discuss more novels? Or both? <laughs> we should discuss because we can't afford the license to write. <laughs> yeah, good point. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm on board with that. I think that we should do... You and I should meet up again and discuss... You and I should read read slash reread the Doom Brigade and get together and discuss that next. I think that's the next logical place to go after Dragons of Summer Flame. You know, it's so silly. I'm literally on Chapter 7 of the Doom Brigade right now as a re-listen. Nice. Um, So yeah, anybody listening who's interested in, you know, reread Doom Brigade, maybe we'll talk about it next time. That's a great Uh, idea. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, but that's all the time that we have for now. Well, it's not all the time. We can talk as long as we want. That's a, that's as much time as we're going to talk about it. Um, so thank you all for listening. And uh, make sure to check us out. Follow us on Facebook. Um, follow our, our Facebook group. Follow us on X slash Twitter at DL Nexus. Check us out on DMs Guild. Check out Tasselhoff's Patches of Everything. Shadow of the Black Rose is going to be print on demand soon. Autumn Twilight is going to be coming out on September 1st. So it's going to be coming out next month. Um, we got a lot of yep. cool stuff coming out. We got the project where uh, a project in the works with Richard Knack, um, which is soon to completion from what I'm hearing. Nice. So stay tuned. And also we're going to be getting back together to discuss dragons of fate soon. 
yeah, lots of cool stuff coming. So make sure to subscribe, follow, et cetera, et cetera. And we will see you next time. Have a great night, everybody. Or good, good day. Night. Good night. Good day. Goodbye. Good How about that? Life. <laughs> Have a good life. Thank you.